Heavenly Father, as we rejoice today in our Savior's resurrection, we ask you in him and by the power of your Spirit to speak your living word to us for your name's sake. Amen. I remember the first time I preached from this pulpit. Some of you were here, though it won't be seared on your memories the way it is on mine. It was the day of my installation two and a half years ago. And as I climbed these ten steps to deliver the sermon, I was not just nervous. I am nervous every time I preach. That day I was absolutely terrified. I was so terrified, I feared my thumping heart would be picked up by my microphone. So terrified, I feared that when I opened my mouth to speak, no actual words would come out. So terrified that had there been an easy way to flee from the pulpit, I would have fled. Two and a half years on, the role of Dean here has inevitably become normal for me. I do not live in a state of permanent terror. In fact, most days, I understand what Dean Patey meant when he described his role as the best job in the Church of England. But occasionally, I do get an echo of what I felt so sharply in this pulpit on that day. Usually, it's the scale of this building which strikes me afresh. It might be that I'm walking up Duke Street and I round the corner at the traffic lights and there it is looming over me. Or it might be when I enter the building again after a few days away and I come up from the, St. From the Sir Giles Gilbert Scott Suite into this great space and I take a deep breath as I embrace again the privilege and responsibility of this role. So while these days I don't get an urge to flee exactly, I do still get an echo of that trepidation. But the terror I felt on the day of my installation was frankly a bit surprising to me I was, after all, surrounded by great love and goodwill, both from the friends and family who traveled here to be with us, and in a way I now know to be typical, from the home team here too. Joy would have been a more appropriate response, but what I felt was terror. And maybe you can relate to that too. Maybe you've experienced something similar at the birth of a child, perhaps, or on your wedding day, or on the day you were baptized, perhaps, or when you secured leave to remain, or a visa, or on passing your driving test, maybe, or receiving the positive results of a medical test. The feeling you expect is joy, what you experience is terror. Well, that's what we find in Mark's account of the resurrection. Where we expect to find a story of great joy, we read one of terror, 
far more than Matthew, Luke, or John, what Mark emphasizes in his story is the panic that those women disciples of Jesus felt on the first Easter day. They fled from the tomb. And if today, in our celebration of the Lord's resurrection, we don't feel at least a faint echo of that terror, I wonder if it's because it's become so normal for us that we've lost sight of its full implications, the privilege and the responsibility that it brings. I'll try to explain. Just put yourselves for a moment in the shoes of those women on that first Easter day, those three women, Mary and Mary and Salome. They had been there 36 hours before at the foot of the cross as Jesus had died. And two of them, the two Marys, had even witnessed the fact as Joseph of Arimathea had taken Jesus' body and laid it in a tomb. Mark tells us all that explicitly at the end of chapter 15 of his gospel. Who knows what they were doing on the Saturday, Mark doesn't say. But then, on the Sunday morning, they made their way to that tomb to complete the rituals of burial for Jesus. On the Friday evening, the approach of the Sabbath had prevented them from anointing his body with spices. So there they were at first light on Sunday to finish the job. And that's all that they were thinking about. It's perfectly clear that they had no expectations whatsoever of any immediate resurrection. Oh, to be sure, as good Jews, they hoped that Jesus would be raised from the dead on the last day, together with all the righteous, but not now, not by himself. The limit of their hopes was that someone would help them roll the stone away from the mouth of the tomb. But when they got there, when they looked up, Mark says, what a telling phrase. When those downcast women looked up, they saw that the stone had already been removed. And for them, that meant only one thing, not resurrection, robbery. It would be like you getting home from this worship today to find your front door wide open. It's not a good sign. When they went in, they found a young man dressed in a white robe sitting to one, one side, and they were alarmed. Of course they were. That's a bit like you getting home later on to find not only is your front door wide open, but there is a stranger sitting on the settee in your front room. We know this man was an angel, but the women did not know that, not straight away. When Mark says that they were alarmed, he means alarmed in the way that we would be by an intruder, even a well-dressed, politely spoken intruder. It's only after that that the penny begins to drop for them. Don't be alarmed, the young man says. I know you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. And then in a series of rapid-fire statements, comes the amazing, life-changing, earth-shattering good news. He has been raised. He is not here. Look, there is the place where they laid him. Go, tell the disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And their reaction is like something out of the Keystone Cops. 
They don't question the man. They don't hug each other and shriek for joy. They don't fall on their knees in pure adoration of God. They flee. When the young man had begun speaking, they were simply alarmed. By the time he'd finished, Mark says, they were seized with terror. They went out and fled from the tomb and they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. There's a little bit of a joke there, by the way. All through the Gospel of Mark in particular, we find Jesus telling his disciples again and again and those who have been healed by him not to talk about him, but to stay silent, to keep his identity a secret until after he has been raised from the dead. But right through Mark's Gospel, people can't help themselves. They simply can't help speaking about Jesus. Now, Jesus has been raised from the dead. These women are not just at liberty to talk, they are instructed to talk by the angel. So what do they do? They clam up. They say nothing to anybody. What's going on? And why the terror? Well, partly you have to make allowances for the turmoil these women have been through in the course of less than a week. Just seven days previously, they had witnessed Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and it must have seemed to them as if they were on the threshold of something wonderful. Then, only 36 hours earlier, those Hopes had been dashed. Jesus had been killed, violently executed, crushed between the heavy millstones of the Jewish temple and the Roman Empire. Of course, they had not got their heads around that utter disaster yet, but anointing Jesus' body, at least that would help them to come to terms with what had happened. So partly, I guess, it's the simple fact of the resurrection that has terrified them. After the roller coaster they've been through in the past week, it's just more than they can cope with. But I think there's something else at stake here, something to do not with the fact of the resurrection, but to do with the meaning of it. Their terror is also, I think, the reaction of people whose worldview has just been shattered, for whom the future has just opened up in an utterly unexpected new way and with far broader horizons than anything they had previously contemplated. Their stunned silence reflects their instinct which at present they cannot put into words. That if indeed Jesus has been raised from the dead, well, not only are their own lives never going to be the same again, not only is history never going to be the same again, all creation is never going to be the same again. In the end, it's a vision of the infinite glory of God that has terrified these women. It's like this. As good Jews, these women had a definite hope of a day when the earth would be filled, flooded with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. The hope of a day when the kingdom of God would come on earth, when God's rule on earth would be unobstructed forever. But until that day came, these women believed, the glory of God would be shut up 
in heaven, except that they also knew that you cannot shut God up anywhere. His glory has a way of spilling out into this world to give us glimpses of what that coming kingdom will be like. Just fleeting glimpses, maybe, but these women were used to seeing them, even to looking for them, glimpses of God's glory as they break into our world, given here and there, now and then. Sometimes in the most ordinary things, the moments when we feel most alive. And what caused these women to flee in terror from the tomb on that first Easter day was the realization that in the resurrection of Jesus, the glory of God had broken not into this world, but out of it. Nothing can contain the glory of God, and Jesus of Nazareth was so full of that glory that nothing could contain him either, not death, not the devil, not the tomb, not the grave clothes. In the resurrection of Jesus, just for once in the history of the human race, a tear was made in the thin fabric which separates earth from heaven, a tear, as it were, from the inside out a tear that will never be repaired, a tear through which the glory of God will indeed one day flood the earth. And there is hope here in the face of the greatest anguish or atrocity on our planet, whether in a Kenyan college or in the French Alps or in any other less newsworthy part of our world. And there is challenge here in the face of the greatest injustice in our own nation, not least in these weeks leading up to the general election. And to share in that hope of Christ's resurrection is a great privilege, but to share in the challenge of it is a great responsibility. No wonder those women were terrified. No wonder they said nothing to anybody. Christians can sometimes behave as if the resurrection of Jesus simply guarantees that he really was God's son, that he really was right all along. Or sometimes Christian behave, Christians behave as if Christ's resurrection also guarantees that in and through him we really can enter into eternal life. Now, those things are true, of course. And the church is called to proclaim those things gladly, boldly, above all, as we celebrate Easter Day. We do, after all, long to see a bigger church. But friends, the resurrection of Jesus guarantees far more than that. Our gospel, our good news, encompasses far, far more than that. Christ's resurrection shatters every narrow, sectarian worldview and opens up for us horizons far broader than anything we could previously have contemplated. What we celebrate this morning is nothing less than the first fruits of the coming of the kingdom of God. We celebrate a guarantee of the day when the whole created order will be finally and eternally transformed by the glory of God. As Bishop Paul has been saying it recently, we long to see a bigger church, yes, but to make a bigger difference. 
the resurrection of Jesus guarantees for us the coming of the kingdom of God. To live in the light of that guarantee is an extraordinary privilege. What a joyful thing it is today to be brothers and sisters of the risen Lord Jesus. But to live in the light of that guarantee is or ought to be an extraordinary challenge too. Which means, of course, that it is also a terrifying thing to be today brothers and sisters of the risen Lord Jesus. The Easter gospel is terrifying. But God forbid that the implications of it, the implications of Christ's resurrection, should ever become unremarkably normal, taken for granted normal here in this cathedral church. Amen.